Hello, I'm Dr. Judy Puddyfoot, a veterinary surgeon from the UK, and this is the Underdog Vet Podcast. In each series, I'll bring you the Animal Advocate interviews, where you can join me as I chat to some truly inspiring people who have dedicated their lives to improving the health and welfare of animals around the world. Guests include a variety of people, including vets, campaigners, and those who have founded or work for animal charities. But one thing they all have in common with you and I is that they're passionate animal advocates. Feel free to hit the subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Details on how you can get in touch are at the end of this episode. And I hope you enjoy this latest instalment. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to this episode of the Underdog Vet Podcast. In this episode's Animal Advocate interview, I chatted with Chris Allen, the dog training manager at Medical Detection Dogs. Medical Detection Dogs is a fantastic charity that trains both biodetection dogs and medical alert assistance dogs. Now don't worry if you don't know what that means because Chris explains everything in our chat. And as well as the incredible work being done by these amazing dogs, we also talked about how these dogs are trained what their regular working day is like and how the information that they're giving us is being used by medical researchers to combat illnesses to improve human health. So, Chris, hello, and thank you so much for giving up some of your time to come onto the podcast and talk to me. I have been a fan of medical detection dogs for a long, long time. I was very, very lucky to be invited to come up to the training facility uh, to see the amazing work you did a long, long time ago now, uh, 2014, 2015, and met uh, Dr. Claire Guest and all the trainers, and it was I mean, I was blown away. It was just amazing what you do up there. So for those people listening who, who aren't aware of what medical detection dogs is, tell me, what does it do? Uh, who are you and how do you do it? Sure. Well, thank you so much for inviting me along. Um, yeah, medical detection dogs is a charity that basically uses that amazing nose that our dogs have. Um, and we use it and the dogs alert and indicate through an odour change. Um, so we have two elements to medical detection dogs. We have our medical alert assistance dogs. So these are dogs that will go out eventually working and living with someone that has a life threatening condition. And that could be a condition such as type one diabetes, um, a condition called POTS, which is a cardiac condition that suddenly causes them to, to drop to the floor, as well as severe, severe um, allergies, nut allergies and, and Addison's. Um, so the dogs are trained eventually to acknowledge and understand their client's unique odour. And when there's a change in that, the dogs will alert their client that there was an odour change. That will then indicate to the person that they must go and test their blood sugars, see what the levels are. Um, if the dog was working for a client that had POTS, that would mean to the person that in the next two, three, five minutes, they're going to collapse and fall to the floor. So they need to go and find somewhere safe. They need to go and put themselves, lie down somewhere, um, ready for when they do sort of pass out. Um, so they're safe, then not causing themselves any injuries or, or any harm. 
So for a lot of our clients that have our dogs, it really is life-changing and life-saving because a lot of these clients would end up in hospital, um, either because they've collapsed and had a fracture, broken something, or they've you know passed out through through diabetes and, and not come round. So you know this, it really is allowing them to to lead more independent lives and and, and do what they want to do in life. That's one element to the charity. Our second element is our fire detection department. Um, so I'm sure many, you know, many of your listeners out there have heard about dogs that are detecting um, cancer and malaria and Parkinson's. So in the biodetection, we're working with specialists, collaborators, and we're first of all understanding, has that disease got a unique odour? So does prostate cancer, has it got an odour? Has malaria got an odour? That sort of part one of all the projects but there's always a second part and a third part and then we're sort of looking and understanding well is there a way now that now that we know that it's got an odor is there a way of be able to support medical science give earlier awareness interventions um, on on certain conditions so it's not just about proving that there's, there's an odor but it's then about understanding how can we help how can we use the dog's nose to help medical science, um, to help help people. So they're the, the, they're the real sort of two elements to the charity. So the medical alert side of things, um, we'll try and go over both the medical alert and the biodetection because they're both just as fascinating as each other to me anyway. Um, the medical alert. Now, I found this interesting because when I visited, there was a big note on the door that said, please do not bring nuts into the facility because we're training a dog for somebody who's got a severe allergy to nuts. Now, I understand if you're training a dog for something, you don't want to um, bring in, you know, things that you're trying to train it with that's going to disturb the training. Um, now, <laughs> this is a really stupid question, but how are the dogs, how are you, how do the dogs know if somebody's got a nut allergy, are they just sniffing for nuts in the person's environment and warning them of it? Or because they can't preempt something like, um, you know, you said about an odour. So presumably it's the odour of the nuts they're searching for, is it? it that's, that's exactly right. So um, for our clients that have got a severe nut allergy, what will happen is they could go into an environment, um, so walk into a room, the dog will be aware, and if they detect the odour of nuts, they will then indicate to their client there are nuts within this room. The client can then make the decision what to do next? Do they leave the room? Do they go and ask? You know, it's, it's really then down to them to take the next step. But the dog is, is alerting and making the client aware that that odour the dog has been trained to respond to is in the immediate vicinity. So when we've got dogs in training um, for that, yes, we need to make sure that there are no, you know, no one's got a packet of peanuts on their desk that they're eating, you know, during, during the working day. But also those clients will come to the centre. They'll meet the dogs. We'll get to see what type of character of dog they, they like and they'll get to meet a number of dogs. So when those clients are at the centre, we've got to make sure that when they go into the rooms to work, that there hasn't been anyone in there that's had a packet of nuts or has washed their, you know, washed their hair or been wearing certain aftershaves or deodorant that may trigger that allergy. So quite often there'll be an email going around that we've got this particular person in next, you know, in tomorrow or next week. Therefore, please make sure that you you don't use any products that have got th that particular um, element in. 
So yes, that's that's how it works. But the dogs are detecting the environment and then in, in alerting their their clients to that odor. It's amazing. And now all I've got is an image of a dog just constantly walking around alerting its owner because surely there are nuts almost <laughs> everywhere. You know, walk into a coffee shop or a pub, and that dog's going to kick off. Surely. Yeah, no, definitely. And it is, you know, for many of our clients, it's specific nuts. So it could be walnuts, it could be cashew nuts, you know, and they've all got slightly different odours. Um, so it's generally, I'm not an expert in this area, but it's not generally all nuts. They tend to have an allergy towards a certain type of nut. And that's especially with the, some of the dogs that we have trained, we've sort of found. Um, but no, you know, it's it's amazing as you start looking into it where the odors are and you know and again the, the type of life that they must lead knowing that you're just walking down the street going into a shopping center um, and this odor could be around so diving in deeper to the actual training of the dogs and the specifics of that can i've got so many questions i don't know where to start Do, can you train a dog to sniff out more than one thing because i guess there are people that have multiple things they need sniffing out how long does it take for you to train these dogs to do this and after how long how long does it take until you can trust the results the trust that this dog is 100 percent? maybe they can't be 100 percent. there's another question how long does it take before you can absolutely bang on trust that this dog is going to do what it's been trained to do so can they alert to more than one odor whether that's a nut or, a, or you know another condition I suppose the, the simple answer is yes, they most probably can, but we tend not to have clients that come here with more than one condition. They tend to say, I'm type one diabetes, or I've got this, this, you know, or I've got pups, pops, or I've got that condition. So it's very rare. And I can't recall a time where we've had a client come to us that's got more than one condition. I suppose that the challenge is they could indicate, but then which one do you know? So if you've got a nut allergy and you type one diabetes and you're out in a public place and the dog indicates, the dog can't say to you, oh, it's a nut allergy or you're about to have a, you know, a low or, or a high. So the client would then need to try and make the, the call, well, which, which one is it? So I suppose in that scenario, a lot of the time we'd say, well, what is your, what's the, the most, Severe, what is the severest you know what's the most life-threatening condition focus on that first and then potentially the second alert could come in later on but let's focus on the the primary the number one concern that that client that client has could you in that if let's just play devil's advocate you have somebody who's diabetic and got an allergy could you train the dog to do one specific thing to alert for condition A and another specific thing to alert for condition B? So I don't know, it sits down for one thing or it barks for the second thing. Technically, sure. would that be feasible? What we need to be careful about is that these are very intelligent dogs. So we tend the, the alert, the indication, we don't actually say you must do this. We're looking for the dog to offer its natural behavior. So for them, that might be a paw. That may be a stand and stare. That may be a bark. We want the dog to choose the most natural behavior. If we start teaching the behavior, then there is the risk that they'll start offering that behavior because they know that behavior gets the response. And therefore, you could get attention seeking. So uh -huh. if you teach the dog, right, you need to sit for this. If the, if the dog is very clever, it'll be thinking, OK, well, every time I sit, I get a treat. So that is then you start to get mixed signals. 
that's when the client then starts to lose a little bit of trust um, in the dog. But for our assistance dogs and our dogs that are working, what will happen is the dogs will wait for the client to test themselves before uh, the reward comes out. So if they've alerted with someone that's got type one diabetes, the person will, will, will test themselves first. If the dog's correct, they will then get the treat. They don't get the treat straight away. So we need to make sure that the dog is responding um, again to make sure that they don't start tension seeking or offering that behavior because it's an easy way to, to get a treat. So I think to, off, to teach the dog two separate behaviors would be quite challenging for the dog and could lead us down a road where the client wouldn't necessarily believe or have the trust in the dog because they could offer that for other 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 behaviors as well or other reasons yeah no that makes sense and then in terms of the specifics of training the dog you alluded a bit to it there with treats and things is i imagine things like positive reinforcement is massive and do you use anything you said about you asked the dog to or you like the dog to choose its its behavior um do you use things like shaping and things like that then to reward when the dog's doing the right thing? Most definitely from eight weeks of age, when we take a puppy on um, and they're living with a volunteer um, socializer, they've been supported by the socializing trainers here. The training starts at that age, you know, they're learning general manners, social obedience, social manners, but quite quickly we're starting to teach them to use their nose. So during that socialising period, we'll get them most probably looking because of the breed types that we use. They're generally Labradors, Spaniels, gun dogs. They like retrieving. They like searching for an article. So generally, we'll perhaps use a tennis ball and we'll start to hide that tennis ball in long grass or start to play little sort of hiding seat games, hide it around the lounge, um, tuck it under a pillow, you know, behind something. So they can't see it. But what they have to do is start to learn that actually... If I use my nose, I will find that article and then I get to have a good game with it. I get to have a good play with it. So at an early age, we're switching on their nose so they, they get used to, to using it. For our medical alert assistance dogs, we also want them to learn that actually coming into the person is a really good behaviour. So some of our dogs, they may have slight separation issues because they, we want them to be into people. We want them to be aware of what that person's doing. There is no point the client sitting downstairs and then the assistance dog is in, in the kitchen area. If there's an odour change, they're not going to be close enough to recognise that. So we want dogs that are going to be sat next to you. We want dogs that when you get up and go to the kitchen, they're going to follow you. They're going to want to know where you are because they're then going to be very close to then alert you straight away when there is an odour change. So we want the dogs to be aware of you and come into you um, and fuss around you. So again, we'll we'll hide the tennis ball in our pockets. We'll hide the tennis ball you know, under our armpits and tuck it into our sleeves. So again, they search you for the odor, and then when they find it through the nose, they then get a game with the with the tennis ball. So that's that is part one of, of their training, and that's that is started through socializing and is just de developed throughout as they as they mature but it's very much shaping a lot of the training going settling in their beds being quiet offering the right behaviors we're capturing those behaviors a lot of our trainers will use a clicker so we can mark the right behavior um, the treat the toy can then follow up but the you know the pups really understand that's that's what i'm getting that the treat for 
that is then continued as they come through to advanced training um, and then they go on to our instructor team who then pair them and, and work with the clients and then that is followed up once they're out working so a working you know the training period if you were to include the puppy socializing you're looking at about most probably a two two and a half year period um, because you've got the socialization but the breeds labradors they don't mature you know mentally until they're 18 months two years two and a half years of age so we've got to allow them to naturally mature physically and mentally to make sure that we get the best best from them and they are ready to cope with those challenges going into public areas going on public transport going into a shopping center at christmas time is is tough i mean you know, it'd be tough for any dog but then to be you know, have your nose always aware of what your client's doing has got to take that confidence. It's got to take that mental and physical ability to, 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 to do that and, and juggle that. So we can't rush the training. Some dogs may go out working with a client by two years of age. Some may take slightly longer because of the breed or, or just their maturity. What's the sort of failure to success rate, would you say, of, of the dogs that you train? Do they all make it or are there some uh, some that don't quite make the grade with their nose? No, there's some, you know, some some won't make it just because of the nature of the work and um, the breeds that we're using as well. So, you know, you know yourself within the larger breeds, you've got certain health issues. You've got allergies, you've got hip issues, elbow issues. So there may be lovely dogs actually can are they fit enough to fulfill the role of, a, of an assistance dog is their allergy too severe that it's going to impact on their their working day is it fair for them so we'll have a small number of dogs that may not make it because of their their, their health but also maybe their character lovely dogs but they just don't want to be an assistance dog you know, I always say to people that if I was in training, I would fail because I hate shopping. I don't want to go into shopping at Christmas time. I'm quite happy in my garden. I'm quite happy going for, for long walks, but I, I, I avoid shopping as, as much as possible. Um, so these assistance dogs have really got to enjoy that type of life. So when I'm planning, because I manage the, the puppy supply and I'm sort of looking to make sure I've always got enough puppies in the scheme to go out in, in two years of you know two years time i tend to use a twin about a 75 percent pass rate so 25 percent failure rate is what i tend to use and we sort of fluctuate between a, twin, a 75 and 80 percent pass rate um, with with our dogs so it's a very small percentage of our dogs don't make it as as a, a medical alert assistance dog but because we have different elements to the charities, we have a biodetection department as well. I'm very fortunate. I can say, OK, well, that dog's not right for that part of the charity. But could you work for this part of the charity, which needs different characteristics? So as a biodetection dog, they're not going to go into shopping centres. They're not going to be expected to work in, in those environments. So I could look at them and see whether that role is going to suit their character um, and, and temperament, which you know makes I'm very fortunate to have those those choices. And to be fair, that is a very impressive success rate. I, I, I mm. wouldn't expect it to be that high. It's it's great. I mean, I'm biased. Obviously, Labradors are kind of my thing, as anyone who knows me even that much knows. I suppose it helps that you've got the setup that you want right from the beginning, as you've said. You start working with these puppies from when they're eight weeks old. And the socialization must be 
amazing, the best socialization a dog can get, I imagine. But then you go through the, the different stages, I suppose. You've got the support system there to pretty much set these dogs up for success. So the only ones that aren't going to make it, as you say, the ones that just naturally have a character that, yeah, it doesn't really suit. I haven't got a great work ethic. I'm not really going to do this. So equally, they don't get chucked out. They kind of maybe better on the biodetection side. So what does the biodetection side involve more? We've talked a lot about the medical alert assistance dogs. Um, what does the biodetection involve? So the biodetection dogs are your workaholics. They would just work 24-7. So they are perhaps your more driven working breeds. So you're working cockers, your sprockers, you're working labs. They just love to use their nose and they would just keep going. Um, so that that work again starts they've had their socialization period they've had the training period um but their 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 work could start from about 14 to 18 months of age so we'll assess their suitability initially and what we will do is we will start and put them on a a early training odor and we will set up in time over a 10 or 12 week period a mock project which all these dogs would go on to eventually if they were successful. So basically we're saying to the dog, right, here's your training odour. Know it, learn it. We're now going to reduce the odour size. So eventually it's been rested on a piece of tissue, paper. It's just rested on it. It's had contact. We're then going to put that paper into one of the bio stands that we have here. So it's residual odour. It's not the actual article in there. And then we're going to say, right, we're now going to put in all the other stands. So we might have four or five stands and we're going to put other 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 odors in other distractions. So you've got to indicate to us which one has your odor in. But what we're going to do is we're going to not tell the trainer. So the trainer has to be blinded. Um, so they will leave the room. We will move the odor around. They come in eventually and say, yep, my dog's indicating on stand four. That's where it is, because once they go into project, we won't know when we go into double blind testing whether and where the odors are. We'll know it's prostate. We know it's a malaria project. So we know that there will be samples that have that specific odor in, but we won't know. So as a trainer, you can't help the dog at all. And as a dog, you're not going to get that subtle look, that subtle, yeah, good, you know, good boy, good girl. You're not going to get that from your trainer because they won't know. So we need those self-assured, confident dogs that say, I don't need a human. I've got my nose. I've learned the job. Leave me to it. I'm going to go and I'm going to tell you which, you know, which stand's got my odour in. So they are slightly more independent. They're slightly more stronger characters, a little bit more willful because they really are understanding and, and happy to use their nose and don't necessarily need a person to be in their life, you know, and then they will just go down the same line, you know, six, seven to eight times um, and not get bored of it. So that's why we're able to use the different characteristics within our, our dogs and the different lines as well. So the, the show lines, the working lines and the dual lines. Um, we're able to get and match the dog's character and personality to the, the area of the charity that we feel the dog is best suited to. You mentioned about obviously the specific breeds <clears throat> and it absolutely makes sense why you use the breeds you do for each of the, the arms of the charity. 
where do you get your dogs from, your puppies? And can any dog be trained to do this? Yeah, a lot of our, our puppies at the moment will come from breeders. So, you know, when we talk about our success rate, it actually starts before eight weeks because um, we'll be talking to breeders that perhaps are planning a litter or pup breeders that we've had successful puppies from. Um, so already we're looking at the parentage, the grandparentage, we're looking at the lines, we're looking at the health scores, DNA profile, um, you know, are there any health issues within that, that line? So even before we get the puppy, from a health point of view, we're trying to be as successful as, as we can do. But a lot of them will come from breeders. Um, we will take um, pups and, and, and adult dogs as well from, from private homes. So I know we've not spoken at all or touched on the, the COVID-19 project that we've got running, but we've got a, a flat coat retriever um, on that who is, who is amazing. And she actually came to us at about 11 months of age from, a, from an elderly couple that just realised that actually she had more to give than, than what she could give them and they just felt that she was she was wasted with them and they wanted to see her go on and fulfill a real good life so they donated her to us um you know at 11 months of age and, and she's on our COVID-19 project so we can take dogs on from private homes we can take slightly older dogs we take dogs from rescue centres welfare organisations so I suppose one of our latest recruits for those that have perhaps been on our website recently will be aware of Iggy the little dachshund that we have come from breed rescue um, again amazing nose you know they are bred to use their nose um, they have other characteristics that you know are more challenging um, but if we can shape his his drive and his want to, to use the nose in our direction he will be phenomenal but he comes from breed rescue uh, and we've got lots of dogs out working as assistance dogs or biodetection dogs that have come from Wood Green, Battersea, Dogs Trust and, and other organisations. Because of COVID over the last two years, the supply became more challenging. Um, breeders couldn't travel, matings couldn't take place. So during first lockdown, there, there was a huge chunk of time where we couldn't get any puppies. We couldn't travel, matings couldn't happen. So it showed me that actually we're quite vulnerable it's good why why everything's good and we can tick along and, and work as we were but if another you know if, if challenges or things get tough we are quite vulnerable so we have just started a very small breeding scheme so we had our first litter the end of last year um, and that's a, that's to supplement the supply it will never become our only source but it will be to make sure that we've got puppies that we know will be coming through that have been, again, bred from the lines from from, you know, dogs and bitches that have been successful as, as assistance dogs or by detection dogs, um, just to, to make sure that we've got that security in place as the charity grows. So there's three or four different sources that we can get our puppies, uh, our puppies and, and dogs from. Thinking about the dogs that you have um, and their life, I mean, obviously they're working dogs. Um, do they live with their trainers or do they live with foster carers or do they live at the centre? What's what's the sort of setup for their daily life? Yeah, we have a uh, no kennel policy here. So the dogs that are in training or come into the centre for working, they all live either with staff or with local volunteers. Every day, you've got puppies, we've got volunteers arriving that are dropping off their dogs. So 
some of the you know some of these dogs will be with people that perhaps do work but they will come in eight o'clock in the morning drop the dog off they'll go to work they'll come in at half past five six o'clock in the evening pick the dog up take it home give it a lovely evening you can relax in its bed lead a you know lead a normal life but then come back to university or school um, the day after to to do more learning a lot of staff take dogs home so um, i've got a a 12 month old labrador called inca she's actually I don't know, I can't move my camera, but she's she's in her bed at the moment there with me. Oh, um, if only the listeners could see her. She, trust me, yeah. guys, she's beautiful. So she comes home with me every night, um, comes into office during the day, the trainers take her out, um, and she's in, in training to be a medical alert assistance dog. So a lot of the office ha, offices have got dogs in um, that are coming in for training um, during the day. Oh my God, it sounds like an ideal workplace. Every room you walk into, there's a Labrador. Are you kidding me? Or a Spaniel. <laughs> or a Spaniel, okay. Excellent. Have we got any vacancies? <laughs> so we talked about you get them from, you know, well, before they're even eight weeks old, to be honest. Let's go to the other end then. What age do these dogs typically retire at? Do you decide that we're going to retire? I presume some of them can work forever, but what age do they typically retire at? Yeah, you're sort of looking at about, for our medical alert assistance dogs, 9, 10, 11 years of age. It's not a set age. Now, we have an app um, that our clients have access to. So we quite regularly get data sent in to us so we can observe the dog's performance and see how accurate they are we we visit them annually so we're seeing them you know sort of at least 12 you know once every 12 months once they qualified so we're able to have these conversations but when the data looks like the dog's getting a bit slower or it's starting to miss the odd indication we'll then start to open up these discussions um, with our clients as a if it was a biodetection dog again it can vary depending on the project that it's that it's on so you know, some of our dogs that are on our prostate cancer project, which started eight, nine, ten years ago, some of those are retired, but some are still perhaps coming up to their sort of last year of working um, on that because obviously they've gone through the training and they have a really good understanding of what prostate cancer smells like. Um, and we're so close on that project that, you know, we wanted to sort of get them to the end and get them to the end of the project and then they can retire quite happily. Um, so there's no set age. It's really down to the dog um, when they start to slow down or when the project comes to comes to a close. You know, I've just thought about something. If you've got a dog that's trained to sniff out, I don't know, let's say bladder cancer and they go home of an evening to their to their carers and they take them out for a walk in the park. If they walk past someone and they're not in work mode, as it, as it, I suppose you could call it, would they technically still respond if they walk past somebody who, who may be completely unaware that they've got that particular type of cancer? They, they shouldn't do it. I think, you know, that's a, a sort of one of the, the myths around the biodetection dogs that are, are trained on prostate cancer or Parkinson's. They are trained on clinical samples. So these are samples that have been provided to us by clinicians and they are presented to the dogs in a specific way. So they're not screening people. They're not working on people. They're not going into rooms and, and, and screening them. So it's a very specific way that the dogs are working and it's you know they come into the training area and know that they are here to, to work. Saying that, you know, for those that have read um, Dr. Claire Guest's book, Daisy, uh, you know, you have read there that, you know, Daisy was a Labrador that, that was living with her that was in training on the prostate cancer 
um, but actually did um, start to make Claire aware that um, something wasn't quite, quite, quite right. Um, and it ended up that Claire did go and get herself checked out and she had a very invasive but early stages of breast cancer. Um, so wasn't trained to that odour, but was very in tuned with Claire living with her um, and you know, fussed around, of her, around her, made her aware that there's just something slightly odd here. And that's where and, and how the charity really started. It's all these anecdotal stories that are out there where pet dogs have suddenly started licking a certain part of you know, their owner's body or, or pouring it. Um, and they've noticed there's been a mole or something. They've gone to the, you know, gone to the doctors and so on. Um, and it has ended up being some type of cancer. So the, those particular dogs aren't trained to work on people. It's very much clinical samples that are provided to us. So I guess these dogs, just by association, they, they come into the office and they start working. They work nine to yeah. five. Uh, and when they go home, they're not in that environment. They're not in the office. They're not with the, the setup that you've got there. They know, that's it, I switch off. Yeah, no, definitely. The only element, and this is a new one to us, COVID-19, uh, because that is out there, that is out in shopping centres down the street. So that has provided us with a new challenge, ethically, how do we manage that? But no, for the dogs that are working on those other odours it's very much it's a clinical sample this is what you do you, you're not working on people but it's, it's a myth you know I've been in town plenty of times um, and I remember um, an incident a couple of years ago um, where I was walking behind a trainer um, and I was just observing well I was, actually, no, I was handling the dog um, and the dog kept looking behind a couple and they sort of stopped me and said oh um, your, dog, your dog keeps looking at us is, is it trying to indicate that there's something wrong with us and go no no the train is walking behind you um don't don't worry but you know we in town we'll get people that will sort of move to the side and avoid them because they think the dogs are going to be in you know scenting them and indicating on them if there was a some you know a, a disease that they they recognized i wish i could learn from the dogs to just uh, turn the work mode off because as a vet, when I when I go out and about and I see dogs, I, I, I'm literally in my head every time I see a particular dog. I'm, I'll say the condition that that breed often gets, and I just yeah. can't can't switch it off. So maybe I'm one of those workaholic dogs that you mentioned. <laughs> I've heard it mentioned in the past, then, and more specifically with the medical alert assistance dogs, that are they always in work mode and in detection mode? Can they ever just switch off? They, they, they can. They, they, are, they are, they're not dogs that are sitting and staring and waiting. They are dogs that are just laying around. But, you know, as you all know, that nose is always working. It's always processing what's happening. What, you know, what food are you cooking? What's on the carpet? So it's just that all they're doing is then processing. Thinking, OK, well, that's, a, that's a, an odour that I get rewarded for. So I'm going to come up and I'm going to come and, you know, fuss, touch them, bark at them. They're not sat there, they're not staring, they're not waiting for it to happen. That incredible nose is just telling them there's an, there's an odour change and they've, you know, they've, they've caught that. So it's not a stressful work. It's not um, like you and I at work and we, you know, we're in that frame mind. They are very much in home, coming and going, in the garden, going for walks. Um, and that nose will just pick up on that, that odour change. So it's, yeah, as you say, it's just that they're not turning... They're not switched on all the time. It's it's more a reaction then. So the dog yes. is going about its life, doing whatever it does during the day. And if it happens to smell that odour, then it will just react. And that's when it starts to work. 
that's it. No, that's exactly it. And there is a tree to a, or a toy that's then you know follows up. Um, you know when the when the dogs are right. So so yes. And have you ever had any cases of dogs perhaps losing their training when they go home with their client? Uh, I know you said about when they get older. Obviously, maybe they start to slow down and, and miss some some of the signals. I suppose the nature of it is: are they being constantly? rewarded and therefore the training reinforced when they get it right or is there an element of perhaps they could actually forget their training we we try and reward as, as much as we can do um because it is so you know it is so so important um but dogs are dogs and you know some partnerships won't work out and we've got dogs that were initially perhaps trained on diabetes but it didn't necessarily work out but then they've gone and worked and lived with someone that perhaps has got pots so a completely different odor and they've been amazing we don't really know why. It's, it's very, it's very interesting. But we have dogs that that can and have swapped from one odor to another because they haven't been success, successful in one, but they found another odor really interesting, and and you know they've got really into it. So dogs are dogs. We're not going to get it right all, all the time. Um, and again, it depends on on the clients as well. You know, we know with type one diabetes now. There's there's more and more other devices out there. Um, that our clients can can use you know and, and that's fine everyone has the option and again if we've been able to help medical science develop um, and, and produce these um, these aids um, then then that's great but you know having a dog having that waggy nose that you know that waggy tail going out for walks um, you, you don't get from electrical devices alarms um, so there's always that other element of having a dog, having that character, having something to have a bit of fun with, that unconditional love that makes them very appealing to, you know, to a lot of our clients. You are preaching to the choir here, Chris. <laughs> so I guess really what it's about is you, the dogs love doing this and you're just manipulating, I suppose, and taking advantage of and honing their natural abilities and their natural want and need to please and to work and to be helpful. Definitely, you know, the dogs have, what, 350 million receptors. And so they're working all the time, olfactory receptors, and they're working all the time. And all we're saying to these dogs is, when you recognise this odour, this is what you're going to, you know, what you need to come and do. Get close, if it's, a, you know, working with an assistance dog, fuss around them, because something nice will definitely happen. Again, it's all part of the selection, you know. We're looking for those dogs that want to work they're curious, they, they want to use their nose, they perhaps want to get into mischief um, and get into trouble because they're inquisitive. If they're just going to sit there and be polite, then they're not going to be perhaps the right dogs for us um, because we want them to be, come on, I want to go, and, oh, you know, I want to get under that chair and try and dig out that tennis ball that I can sniff or I can smell a treat that's under the, under the freezer. I want to try and get to it. You know, so we want those, those types of personalities. But the, yeah, using the nose is, is obviously natural because um, they can quite easily find fox poo and everything else to, to roll in and stuff like that. So we're just trying to shape it in, in the direction we want it to go down. It's not really work for these guys, is it? I mean, it's just a, a coming into the office and having a day of fun and, and playing around. Oh, it is. It is. You know, I wish I could be one of one of these dogs, you know, and the health and welfare that they get. So we have volunteer dog walkers that come in throughout the day to take them for walks. So, you know, the training sessions may only be three two three times a day sort of 30 minutes at, at a time other times they're in the office chilling you've got staff coming and going volunteer dog walkers will come up we've got paddocks we've got walks around here so that you know they'll go off for a walk come back into the office have a bit of snooze perhaps get a stuffed kong have it you know have a, have a, have a play with that 
So it really is a, a varied life for them. And you said about the characters of the dogs and, and the characteristics you mentioned often are the reasons why certain dogs with those characteristics don't make great pets in homes. And so it yeah. sounds like these dogs that could be, you know, troublesome pets, should we say, would actually make great medical detection dogs. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, we could talk about Asher, a little working cocker spaniel. Um, you would have seen him perhaps on our social medias. He had, I think, seven homes before he came to us. But he's got an amazing nose. He was on phase one of our COVID-19 project. So he was one of the team that proved that COVID had an odour. His, his nose is, is amazing. But because of that, he has got himself into trouble and has been misunderstood and therefore you then have other behaviour issues because he's been misunderstood as, as a real working Cocker Spaniel. Now he's got that outlet, he can use his nose, all the other, or a lot of the other areas, behaviours have almost diminished because he's now happy because he can use his nose and he's allowed to use his nose. I mean, it's often not about trying to change the dog when they're troublesome. It's about actually changing the environment the dog's in. It is. It's given the outlet. You know, these these dogs have been bred to use their nose. So if you're going to stop them from using their nose or you're going to go to the woods and prevent them from doing it, you're going to cause anxiety, frustration. And over over time, that will come out in other ways whether that's tail chasing because they don't know how to control their, their, their behaviour, chasing, growling, guarding, you know, they've got to find an outlet for all this pent-up energy that they would naturally use if they were able to use their noses. And at the end of the day, I think what humans don't seem to understand is that these are dogs that have adapted to live with humans. Can you yeah. imagine a human trying to adapt to live with dogs? We're not going to be anywhere near as good at it. So give the where credit is due come on these dogs are amazing and now look they're helping us save people it's just amazing work yeah it is you know if you think of a, a normal day all the sights and sounds that we have to live with all the technology um the background noise everything you know there's a huge there's a, a huge amount of stuff that those those dogs that have to process for their nose for their eyes for their hearing for all the different sensors and, and make sense of it. And when it's not understood, that's where you then, or prevented from being, being able to use those, those senses, you know, you then start to get behavioural issues. Now, I wanted to talk about the connection you have with the NHS. I assume that obviously your medical detection dogs are detecting stuff. Have you got partnerships with NHS trusts or hospitals? Where do your samples come from? How many do you do process in a day or a week? And Presumably they're all accurate. Um, have you any idea how many lives these dogs have saved up to this point? We do work with a number of trusts. Um, for us to be able to run a project, we have to work with the trust because we can't get access to cancer patients. We can't get access to, um, to those samples. So for us to be successful, we have to work with, with many, many trusts. Um, you know, normally we've, what well, most probably got five or six different projects running at different stages at one time um, there's a huge amount of ethics that we have to go through to make sure that we manage the data we manage the samples um, correctly effectively um, so there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes it's just not that easy to get a sample and train the dog we have to make sure that they are managed they are you know the samples are cared for um and the information that we've got on those those samples uh 
you know, are stored very securely and safely. But without the trusts that we work with, we wouldn't be able to do what we do because we, we're, we're dog trainers. We're one part of that, that partnership. We need the NHS trusts to, to come on board and, and help us to, to give us that other element, which is the unique odour. So obviously when I'm at work, I take samples of things and I send them over to a laboratory and somebody with uh, much more excitement about microscopes looks at it than I do. Are you used habitually by the NHS for diagnostic purposes or is it specific cases that are sent to you? Yeah, no, at the moment we are very much, when we look at and we're working at projects, we're working with a collaboration. We're not providing any information to the trusts or to the patient. So we may work with collaborators such as London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, um, Durham University, you know, places like that, that they can be our link. They can then work with the trust, they can get the, the samples in, they can process them, they can record them, they can freeze them, they can set them up so they are then safe when they come through to us, whether that's a, a you know, a feces sample, a sweat, breath, um, whatever the way that it's collected needs to be done for that particular project. But at the moment, yeah, we don't provide and we don't get samples in from a potential patient that could have Parkinson's run the dogs over that and say yes or no. But that is something that we would like to look into and we want to look into. You know, is there a screening service that the charity could do for certain conditions? Uh, you know, the, I think the most exciting piece of news to come out of the charity the past sort of six months is the work that we've done on our prostate cancer project. Now we've worked with artificial intelligence specialists for the past 10, 11 years um, in, in America, MIT, and they have now been able to and are transferring all the dog data that they have collected. They are now teaching an artificial intelligence device the size of a mobile phone what prostate cancer smells like. So they converted all the dog data somehow and it's now going to be in a, in a in a device which means that in time there'll be trials but in time hopefully i could go to a doctor specialist and they will have this and they will just screen this up and down and because it have an electronic nose it will say yeah you have you know these your, your psi levels and you know this is what where you're sitting at the moment which is a, you know far less invasive than than the current diagnostic way so that is really exciting. You know, that is, is world breaking and world changing, but that's part one, that's prostate cancer. From there, we can look at, you know, sort of, um, you know, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer. And we can look at those, look at those unique diseases and hopefully teach the electronical device what they smell like as well. It's amazing to think that one day, all the work that these amazing dogs are doing could be put into an electronic device that can just be scanned over a person. And thanks to all these dogs, you can get an answer there or then, perhaps whether you might have that condition. Yeah, it is only the dogs that know what prostate cancer smells like. Don't know how they're doing it, but you know we've got they they can they they you know they've come here several times with all their their gimmicks, and we have you know special equipment so they can analyze the dogs, how they're working, the pressure, how they interact with the odors to be able to convert this. Um, what's a you know what's a, a strong prostate cancer compared to a, a slightly weaker one how does that work how does the dog understand that so they can then capture all of that information and and turn it into artificial intelligence it's it's, it's, it's mind-blowing it's, it's it's really exciting and you know very proud to be part of an organization that that is what the the outcome is going to be and that is that's that's huge uh, life-changing 
We couldn't end this chat without talking about COVID-19. Obviously, it's been in everyone's lives for it seems like forever. I think people would have might have seen in, in the press, obviously, or if they've been on your website, that obviously uh, these dogs now are, are sniffing out um, COVID-19. So tell us a little more about the project. I understand that the trials are now done and that the dogs are now out in real life situations testing for, for COVID-19. Is that right? Almost, almost. It's, it's, as you can imagine, it's the first time it's been done. So there's a lot of hurdles. There's a lot of trial and error going down this route. Has that worked? What are the, what are the barriers we're coming up against? So our phase one proved that COVID-19 had an odour. We got well, a, a 94% success rate. So we knew that dogs can detect it. So then part two was phase two, and that was teaching the dogs to passively, passively scan people. And this is where it's been a little bit more challenging because of the different variants that are out there because of the vaccinations um, that are out there you know it's, it's been difficult trying to find those positive odors so we had lots of t-shirts um, through working with Darwin University and London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene you know they, they were able to provide us lots of t-shirts that were worn by people that had COVID-19 so it captured those volatiles captured the odor there's there you know those t-shirts were stored at minus 80 degrees in 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 freezers so we're then able to get them out defrost them dogs get access to the odor and understand but you've got then got all those various background odors that dogs have got to ignore as well so where we are now is we've got a team of um six dogs that are trained mixtures of labs spaniels and, and, and a flat coat and a labradoodle um that are working on the team um and they are Gathering data at the moment, um, my understanding is, you know, if, if we wanted to prove that these dogs could be a, a tool to use, then we've got to show through evidence, through data, that they've had so many accurate hits. So trying to get access to people that have got COVID, but we don't know they've got COVID and they don't know they've got COVID, has been quite, quite challenging. So at the moment, we are working in test and trace stations. Um, so the dogs are going in. So these are people that think they've got COVID. Perhaps they've been pinged still um, or they've been with someone um, that, that has had COVID. So they're going in. The dogs are screening them, but they're also doing an LFT test at the same time. So we can compare the dog's behaviour to the test. Um, and then that can also be backed up by PCR as well. Um, so it's about gathering all that data to say, yeah, dogs can do it in car parks. They can do it in these different environments now who knows what's what the future holds with with covid you know is there going to be another variant when we get back into the to the winter is it going to come up again but what this has also taught us is the process that getting the the training in place getting all the structure in place because who knows this could happen again norovirus is out there you know in, in places care homes stuff like that so We've got now a better understanding of how to teach and train these specific dogs to work on this specific, in this specific way. Um, so we're better prepared for, for another variant or another virus that comes in um, that could hit the population as it has done. Or we could transfer, as I say, to, to norovirus and start working in schools or care homes and where there's a high population. So if we don't end up with, with passive 19 dogs out there, then we would have learned a lot for the future. And it's not just about now, it's about the future, about making sure that we've got all the systems in place ready for, for next time.
talking about the future, what happens if you train these dogs for the Omicron variant, but then there's a new worse variant? Uh, how long is it, will it take to retrain those dogs with the new odour of the new variant? Yeah, obviously that's that's data that we're having to learn, but we know on phase, you know, phase one, there were what two or three different variants that came in during that phase. And actually the dogs were able to transfer quite quickly. So that's why, you know, that, that phase one element where we've got our biodetection dogs that are, are specifically trained for that, for that sort of R&D, research and development, we can go back to those dogs and say, right, here's COVID, here's a new variant. Put the dogs over it, look at their, you know, analyze their success rates. Yeah, you're hitting it 90%, 95% of the time. Excellent. That means we can now move on and get our passive dogs trained and get them used to that to that odor. So it's information that we're learning all the time. But through the phase one that we did, we, you know, we saw that the dogs were able to transfer from one variant to, to the next. What would be the ultimate objective then of the COVID-19 training of these dogs? That dogs would be out there sniffing and diagnosing people or again to put it into artificial intelligence to help with diagnostics in a real world situation? Yeah, I suppose, you know, in long term, there could be a device, you know, a scanning device at airports that you, you know, that has been taught through AI, artificial intelligence, that, that you know, that, that is what COVID smells like. But we know as well that there's still going to be there. So going into sporting events, anywhere where you could have a dog screening people very quickly um, could still be you know, very much used um, effectively. These dogs, through their research, have gone into um, factories. We've gone into Christmas time. We went into a couple of um, Christmas parties. They said, look, come along. We want you to screen the people as they arrive for their evening Christmas party and give an indication. We've gone to one or two conferences and the dogs have screened as, as people have, have arrived. All part of training and all part of research. But, there's the, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't rule out that we could still go to those events um, whether that's us or whether that's a third party is yet to be you know explored as well because we are a, a very small organization you know there's no way that we could train dogs to go into all football stadiums you know we, we're not that size so there could be a need to work with third parties we've got the information we've got the know-how we've got all the data and then we can work with those that have you know are, are nationally can cover cover the country more so still a lot of learning, but it's exciting again. And how is all this fantastic work that you're doing funded? A lot of it. You know, we were very fortunate on our phase one for COVID-19 that the government did, did support us um, with that, um, that, that piece of funding. But apart from that, everything is through public donations, donations, um, our volunteering team, trusts, corporates donating supporting sponsoring dogs you know it is very much there's many different ways that people can donate and support us um but it is a lot of it is, is, is through the public generosity this is probably the most important question that i'm going to ask throughout this whole time can i take on a retired medical detection labrador yeah, we have, we do have dogs that obviously do come up for, for rehoming, whether they've been withdrawn during the training phase or they're retired. However, I would say it would, for a retired dog, it would be highly unlikely because if you're a fosterer that's lived with a biodetection dog for the last nine years and it comes up for retirement, you're going to want to keep that dog 
Um, and we're going to want the dog to stay there because it's happy, it's settled, it knows, everyone knows each other. So it's very rare that a dog that's retired comes up for rehoming. You know, a client most probably will want to keep that dog or maybe a, a close friend or family member may rehome that dog whilst they perhaps get their new assistance dog. It's more likely that we've got a, a dog that's withdrawn at 12, 14, 18 months, perhaps because of a health condition or a, a minor character issue um, that's looking for, for a home. So people can go on, onto our website um, and you know look at our rehoming and contact us that way. But because of our pass rate is, is so good, it's very far and few between. Um, and again, if you're a socializer that's had a dog for 18 months, uh, that's been withdrawn. Quite a few socialisers will say, we can't let this dog go. It's part of the family. Uh, you know, we would love to give it an, a, you know, a nice pet home. And a lot of the time, that's the route those dogs go down as well. So, you know, by all means, visit our website. But there's not many that actually come up for rehoming to go into a, a, a new home, unfortunately. This actually is the most important question I'm going to ask you out of the whole thing. Yeah. Do you need a veterinary surgeon to come and work there with the dogs <laughs> or one that just somebody to come and cuddle the dogs just to play with them at lunchtime? Ideally, the answer to this is yes, Chris. Correct? Oh, of course. Of course. No, most definitely. Now, so we have volunteer dog walkers that, that, that come on site. We've got a health and welfare team here and we do have a dedicated vet unfortunately, that does come here, that, that comes and, and, and looks at the dogs. The dogs on the biodetection and our COVID-19 dogs, definitely for the early stages, we're going through and having health checks every week just to make sure that there's no issues. You know, the dog's health is always um, taken in, into consideration. So you're more than welcome to, to come down and visit us. But we do have a lot of those areas covered, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, you've got my contact details if you ever go sick. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. It's been absolutely brilliant hearing a bit more about the work that you do up there with the with the dogs. Is there anything else that you would want to get out there? As a dog lover and a charity that very much cares for dogs, it's enjoy your dogs, understand your dogs. You know, let's have fun um, and not put too much pressure on them. Um, you know, they are amazing. And again, over the last two years, they have helped us through so, so much. It is fascinating, isn't it, how much... Um, dogs have helped people through like you say covid over the last couple of years and we're seeing obviously in my work lots mm. and lots and lots of puppies and 18 month old two-year-old dogs now and it's quite shocking actually how many <laughs> got really bad socialization skills because yeah. of course they've been great with their families in their houses but of course they haven't been out and socializing with people and i think that's a whole generation of dogs there that are going to need some uh, behavioural advice <laughs> or troublesome pets that might fail as pets and you'll get an influx of dogs soon. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, it has been extremely tough for them. You know, you're going to get dogs with separation anxieties because people have been working from home. The last two years for our lovely dogs and the puppies has been challenging. They've missed out on a lot of those key key training and key socialisation. Um, but I think we need to understand that. We just need to work with it. We can't change it. It's understanding your dog, getting to know your dog's character and then trying to manage the life, the environment that it's in to make sure that it's as happy as it, as it can be.
um, and I'm sure weight-wise as well. These, you know, some of these dogs have put on a few extra pounds because they've not been able to go out for the walks, or they've, you know, been next to you while you've been at home, and they have the odd rich tea biscuit and that as well. So um, I'm sure you've seen a few of those come through your doors as well. One or two, just one or two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much again, Chris, for joining us. I know you obviously you've got busy days there, and uh, I really appreciate you giving up some of your time to come and talk to me on the podcast. So thank you once again. No, it's been a pleasure. It's been a lovely talking to you and, and hopefully, you know, spreading the, 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 the great work that Medical Detection Dogs is doing. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you do want to get in touch with me, then you can simply email me on theunderdogvetpodcast at gmail.com or get in touch via Instagram, where you'll find me as, yes, theunderdogvetpodcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe via your favourite platform. And please note that the Underdog Vet podcast is entirely independent. It's just me, Dr Judy Puddyfoot, speaking as an individual. No affiliations with any organisations, charity or businesses are made or implied unless I specifically mention it. <laughs>